Richard Niles, and welcome to my History of Pop Arranging. I've been a professional musical arranger on a lot of pop hits since 1975, based in London, working with some of the biggest stars in L.A., New York, Moscow, Paris, and Tokyo. But if I were to stop 100 people in the streets of any of those cities and ask them what an arranger is, I'd be lucky to get more than one correct answer from a non-musician. In this unique series, you'll hear from the greatest pop arrangers of the last 50 years, the guys who actually put the bump in the bump-a-bump-a-bump, the men and women who wrote those memorable riffs for trumpets, guitars, and string sections, the people who came up with new and innovative sounds that made records explode with excitement. Largely uncredited on records, some of these great arrangers are known by the public only because they're also famous artists, like Richard Carpenter and Barry Manilow. Though he arranged countless hits like When Will I See You Again and Me and Mrs. Jones, Philly soul man Bobby Martin is less well-known. Me and Mrs. Jones We got a thing going on An arranger is like a home interior decorator or designer that goes into a jumble-up house to use his ideas and material to get the house in order. So a music arranger is one that can take a group of musicians, singers, get in his mind some musical ideas he wants them to play so they will all blend in together in harmony and try to make the best music uh, possibly can. I was helping the cat move out of his apartment. New Orleans arranger Harold Batiste. And uh, when they were putting the stuff in the truck, they was losing a lot of space. So I said, well, man, let me stay out here in this truck. Y'all just bring it out. And I could be more efficiently put the stuff in the truck. And the cat said, yeah, that's right. You're an arranger. You could do that. So, <laughs> so I began to think, yeah, that's right. That's what an arranger does. We just arrange shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. <It's laughs> I don't think anyone quite understands what we do. I'm sure you've had this experience here. What do you do? And, and my heart sinks because I think I'm, I'm in now for 10 minutes of ex explanation. So I lie and I say I'm a brain surgeon, you know, because it's easier. Brain surgeon by default, Nick Ingman there, performing a career lobotomy rather than explain arranging to a non-musician. Bjork and Monty Python arranger John Altman tells of his own frustrations. Always look on the bright side of life. It's like looking at building plans, you know, eventually you just nod assent because you think, I'm never going to get this, so I'll just say yes, I understand. I am the guy who wrote Always Look on the Bright Side of Life because I just got fed up with trying to explain to people that I arranged Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And if you arrange something and you conduct something, you've obviously written it as well, because there is no differentiation whatsoever in 99% of people's minds as to what you actually do and what the songwriter actually does. I think the idea is, oh right, you put that rhythm to it, you invented the whistling, you did the whistling, you um, made the key change when the key change happened, so you wrote the song. You must always face the curtain with a band. 
Yes, strange profession. I didn't intend to be an arranger. I don't know that anybody really intends to be an arranger. You just sort of fall into it. So always look on the bright side of death. Anne Dudley there, who fell into a lot of hits for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, ABC, and The Art of Noise. Yeah, come on. I myself never planned to be an arranger and wanted a career as a songwriter and jazz composer. Graduating from music school, I got a publishing deal because of a stage musical I had written. The musical never got on, but a producer at the publishing company asked if I would do a string arrangement for a disco track he was recording. Although I had studied arranging, I'd never done it professionally and I hated disco. The producer then said, I'll give you 400 pounds, cash. That was a lot of money in 1975, so as you might imagine, it took me about two milliseconds to scream, I'll do it! I was petrified going in the studio, but I was surprised to hear it sounded great. Other people thought so too. Word spread on the musical grapevine and the phone hasn't stopped ringing yet. I doubt there are many kids who woke up on their seventh birthday and announced, Daddy, when I grow up, I'm going to be an arranger. But then again, there's always a weirdo like Nick Ingman, British arranger of hits for S Club 7. The funny thing is, not seven, but around about 11, I said exactly that, which is weird, I agree, because it's not something that people want to do necessarily. But something intrigued me about the nuts and bolts of what happened behind the singers. I love pop music from really early on, but for some weird reason I actually wanted to hear the stuff that was in the background rather than the singers, and who did that? Who made that stuff? He writes the songs, Mr. Barry Manilow. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I arranged for every singer that wanted a piano player slash arranger in New York for, I'd say about four years before I met Bette. But I was like hot. I was a hot accompanist, because you know, accompanying and piano playing are two different things. And I, I have it down. I know how to accompany real well. I can't do flourishes and you know, a lot of great piano playing, jazz playing, but I, I'm my own one-man band, and singers loved that. <laughs> they loved to be able to be accompanied by this percussive keyboard guy. And then, of course, they'd hire me to write it out, whatever I f came up with. I would write out for them, and little by little, I began to uh, arrange for them and put it down for an orchestra. And I mean, I had gone to school for it, but really, I learned it on the road. I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed 
writing. When I would finish, if I, particularly if I wrote it on a score page, I never thought I'd get something played or something like that. It's just, it was satisfactory to see what I had done. I sort of, I guess, slipped into it through the back door. And like I guess a lot of arrangers guys did in those days. It's just that since I could do it, all the guys would always, you know, when they needed something, they would say, oh, we get Harold. And Harold can do it. And I used to just do it, not for money. I just did it because I could do it. I still didn't think of myself as an arranger. I just was a cat who could write music. Legendary arranger and cat who could write music, Harold Batiste. From New Orleans, he moved to L.A. to write the deceptively simple but massively catchy oboe line on I Got You, Babe for Sonny and Cher and create the massively influential Gree Gree album for Dr. John. While Nick, Barry Manilow, and Harold seemed destined for a life in arranging, others, like me, found that arranging was something you found yourself doing when you were on the way to doing something else. This was the case for a man who is credited with inventing funk, the godfather of soul, James Brown's main man. Here's the god uncle of soul, Pee Wee Ellis. <laughs> I used to want to be a fighter pilot, a truck driver. <laughs> I wanted to have a courier service, like a trucking company and airways. <laughs> so I figured I could transport my bands. Pee Wee Ellis never worked for Federal Express, he certainly helped transport the funk all around the world. As James Brown's arranger, he gave Soul a new groove called Funk, co-writing and arranging Cold Sweat, Lickin' Stick, and Say It Loud. As co-leader of the J.B. Horns with Fred Wesley and Maceo Parker, he influenced every brass section that followed. In a cold sweat. Take the ribbon H.B. Barnum didn't intend to be an arranger either. That didn't stop him having a phenomenal career with a list of credits which make the mind boggle with its versatility. H.B. has arranged for Rat Packers, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., and Dean Martin, and Motowners, The Supremes, The Jackson Five, Stevie Wonder, and Smokey Robinson, and he helped Lou Rawls and Gladys Knight and the Pips make it through the night. He's been the only musical director Aretha Franklin has worked with for the last 20 years. Ladies and gentlemen, H.B. Barnum. Come and lay down by my side. My whole ambition was to be a presidential bodyguard. And I spent all of my early days, all of my schooling and everything was geared toward being in the FBI and being a part of the, you know, Secret Service and stuff like that. Uh, I was around music all the time. My mother was a... played the piano, and she kind of geared me toward the piano. I like music, and uh, being in Los Angeles, we had several theaters where they had live bands to play, and although I didn't want to be a musician, I was always attracted to music, so uh, I lived in the projects, but if you took the, the streetcar and got off you get certain stops, you could get off at a club. I used to get off one club where I saw Joe Letcher, Nellie Letcher, and Roy Milton, and Big J. McNeely, and Amos Milburn. Then if I went a little further down the streetcar, I would get up in front of the Paramount Theater, the Million Dollar Theater, and I could see, you know, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Louis Jordan. So I used to just hang out 
I'm talking about from six, seven years old, just hang out around the music and go sit in the back of the theaters and sit in the, you know, in the wings and, and listen. So I knew all the musicians, although I, that was the furthest thing from my mind. So we have a thing called ROTC here, which is a Reserve Officers Training Corps, and every 10th grader has to take it. Well, one of the drawbacks of ROTC is you have to march every morning, and you're on the field at 7 o'clock, and it's cold, and I didn't want to be in the ROTC, and somebody told me if you get in the band, you only march, you're in the ROTC, but you only march once a week. So I went to the teacher, Mr. John Farrar, and I asked him, could I get in the band? And he said, uh, what do you play? I said, I play the violin and I play the piano. He says, well, we don't have violin and pianos in the band. And I said, oh, heck, I want to be in the band. So he says, well, can you carry a tuba? And I said, sure, you know, I weighed 117 and the tuba weighed 500, I think. But he needed a tuba for the band, you know, to balance the line off. So I took the tuba. I, he just challenged me. I, I took a clarinet home, I took an oboe home, I took a French horn home. And at each juncture, he was like, no, you, you'll never learn how to play that. And I did, and it, it became kind of a hobby. So by the time I got out of high school, I could play almost every instrument. I was in the all-city orchestra and French horn. I played clarinet in, in, in the band. I played violin in the string quartet. It was just, it was more like a hobby. I wasn't good, but I could play it. I could read music very well. So it was fun, but I still didn't want to be a musician, though. I was assigned to Louisville, Kentucky, but before I went there, there was a girl named Mickey Grant who was like a little girlfriend of ours, you know, and so she wrote a song called Pink Shoelaces, and I liked the song, so I made a record of it. And when I went to the Bureau, I gave the record, all my masters, to a very good friend of mine across the hall from my little office. Everybody had a record company. So I gave all my tapes to a guy named Carl Burns. Ah, but that's not all he's got. He's got Five, six, seven months later, a guy came through whistling the song, and he said, uh, I said, oh, that song? He goes, oh, that's, I know that song. So I made that record. You know, he says, no, no, no. I said, this is by, this is the number one record in the country. I said, no, no, no. I made that record. He says, no, you didn't make this record. I said, I said who's the singer? So he said, Dodie Stevens. I said, I never heard of her. But that's my song and that's my music. I mean, I know that. He said, no. So I called Carl Burns and Carl says, H, you know, I told your mother to call you. We've been trying to find you. He says, man, you, say, we're rich. <laughs> We've got this money. The record was number one. I uh, immediately resigned from the bureau and came home with the idea that if I made one record that was a hit, I could make a thousand records, they would all be hits. Of course, I was broken about four months. <laughs> I, mean, I just made records, you know, no, just made records, you know, I had a record company, you know, the whole bit. Didn't know anything, I didn't know what I was doing, so I was broke again. Now one day, Doobie started feeling sick and he decided that he better make his will out quick, he said. Just before the angels come to carry me, I want it down and right and how to bury me. I was playing gigs all the time because I could play all different kind of instruments. I was in country western bands, I was in rock and roll bands, was, but there was no money, you know. So it seemed like the guys who were making the money were the guys who were the arrangers. The writers were making money, but I had no connection to know that uh, the writing would be and the publishing would be. I didn't have any idea, not stuff like that. And a big Panama with a purple hat band. 
I knew basically how instruments work, but I didn't know the, I didn't have the skill of arranging, and uh, so I looked in the billboard, and I found the guys who I thought were the best guys. One guy was John Williams, one guy was Ernie Freeman, and one guy was Neil Hefty. So I made some phone calls. And I basically what I said was, hello, my name is H.P. Barman, I'd like you to teach me how to arrange music. And each guy said, well, who is this? Why are you calling me? I said, well, you're the best you know, jazz guy, you're the best pop guy, you're the best you know, classical guy, I want you to help me. And each guy said yes. Now these guys didn't know I was talking to the other guys. They didn't know this for years later, you know. But I used to go sit at you know, the sessions and sit there and watch them. I'd meet them early in the morning, you know, and just follow them around all day and listen and watch and learn. And then uh, I started picking a few sessions myself and I got hooked. Uh, it worked out fine. I'm having a good time. I'm not serious yet, but one day soon. So now we know that an arranger chooses a lineup of musicians, takes songs in their basic form, and composes a new accompaniment for the singer. In pop music, hopefully one that makes the song sell, and sometimes he actually gets paid for it. How do you actually get started? Arif Mardin is probably one of the best-known arrangers and one of the key architects of the Atlantic Records sound. He's arranged and produced countless hits for Aretha Franklin, Dusty Springfield, Shaka Khan, the Bee Gees, the Average White Band, and he even put the wind beneath Bette Midler's wings. Would you be surprised to hear that this legend of American music is in fact Turkish? My first, first starting was in Istanbul, Turkey. I had jazz musicians, friends, and I would ask him, how low, low does the tenor sax go? This is the note. Okay, what is that? A flat concert low. Okay, fine. How high can the trumpet go? And would then write arrangements for a small orchestra, you know, for a small jazz combo, actually, and listen. With that knowledge, really learned from, actually, practice. When I came to Berklee College of Music in Boston, I already had a few things. The reason I went to Berkeley is because I won a scholarship, the Quincy Jones Scholarship, because uh, I had orchestrated and uh, composed the, my compositions for a 10-piece orchestra. Two trumpets, one trombone, tenor, alto, and baritone sax, and three rhythm for an A-team of 1956. Uh, that Quincy Jones put together in New York. Art Farmer, Phil Woods, Hank Jones, you know, all these guys. And they played my pieces and Quincy then sent the tape to the school. He said, I found the guy I want to give the scholarship. When I heard that tape, I said, did I write this? Because it was like so unbelievably played, you know. So I did have the knowledge. But when I came to Berkeley College, I was fortunate to study with Herb Pomeroy. Her Pomeroy's big band was then available for me. And I would write arrangements, copy the parts, uh, big band, how many pieces, 18 pieces, and I used to copy. And go to the rehearsal, listen to my arrangement, and he would critique it. This won't do, this is great, this is not good, you know. So that was my really training ground at Berkeley, writing for his superb band.
I went to the Berklee College of Music too, and compared to learning on the gig as HB did, it's definitely a fast track to the ins and outs of arranging. Arranging legend Jimmy Haskell has worked with such diverse artists as Ricky Nelson, Sheryl Crow, Celine Dion, and Steely Dan. He's been honored with three Grammy Awards for his emotive French horns on Chicago's If You Leave Me Now, for Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe, and for his groundbreaking work with Simon and Garfunkel. But he became a professional by being robbed by a fellow student. I was learning arranging at Los Angeles City College, and there was a really great teacher in the class named Bob McDonald. He's no longer with us, but Bob was so young when I first came into the class that I didn't know which one was the teacher and uh, whether he was a student, you know. And uh, it turned out he had played trumpet with some big bands, and uh, actually he played fourth trumpet with Glenn Miller at one time fantastic arranger, fantastic teacher, and L.A. City College had a big 17-piece dance band that would rehearse twice a week, and they won many awards on the All High School Band Awards, uh, things of that nature, and he taught me basic arranging, uh, basic orchestration arranging for band, orchestra, things like that. Now, the strange part of that was that one of the students in the class liked the arrangement I had done for Nature Boy. It took me three months to write it, and it was played at a school odd, you know, at one of the presentations of the band. And uh, he liked it so much that he collected the music that night. And uh, I was always so busy because in addition to going to City College, I was playing accordion at night in a nightclub. So I was so busy, I didn't even think about collecting my music. And this young man collected my music, took it over to Lionel Hampton, Lionel Hampton played it, loved it, and bought it from the young man. <laughs> uh, so I then went, uh, I, I told the young man, I said, you owe me some money. He said, I'm sorry, I spent it, I really needed the money. So I went to see Lionel Hampton, and. Uh, he said, yeah, I really like that chart. He says, but uh, uh, that's a sad story you just told me, but I'm, I'm going to keep it because I paid for it. He says, so write me another arrangement. So I did. And he paid me for it, $125, which was really an amazing amount of money. <laughs> Both Jimmy Haskell and Arif Mardin had an introduction to music that was steeped in jazz, yet their careers have focused mainly on pop music. The obvious reason for this is that pop pays and jazz doesn't. But I asked the avuncular Jimmy to describe the difference between the pop arranger and the jazz arranger. Well, the pop arranger works with melodies that are similar to those that became popular in the 30s, 40s, and 50s before rock and roll came around. Swing started to come in, but swing is now considered to be pop also. Sinatra, believe it or not, was a pop singer who swung. And so a lot of the songs that Frank Sinatra sang were pop songs. And the pop arranger has to know how to support 
those kind of songs because if you're going to put a rap rhythm section to it, you're no longer appealing to the people who like pop songs. You may appeal to the younger people who will suddenly discover the old pop song, but it's no longer a pop arrangement. You can put swing licks to it and that becomes swing and it's still pop. You can put jazz licks to it and as long as you hear the melody, it's pop. But the minute you go to the instrumental, it's no longer pop because you've got a bunch of guys going way out in left field. Then the jazz people would love it, and the pop people may or may not love it. What was it Ellington said? There's only two kinds of music, good and bad. British-born Jeremy Lubbock. That's about the size of it. I mean, I think arrangers have all kinds of skills. Some are obvious skills like you have to be a good enough musician and you have to know the technique and you have to know the instruments and, and all that stuff. But probably the most important thing is that you have to very quickly recognize the context in which you're working and work accordingly. Now that's not to say that sometimes you can't make rather interesting juxtapositions, unlikely. I mean I, I'll never forget that years ago I did a thing for the Four Tops I never worked for them before, and Holland and Dozier wrote the song, so they were also involved. And they gave me this absolutely stunning track. I mean, it was to die for this thing. And, and the song was interesting, it was called Sail On. And it was the metaphor, it was a sort of maritime metaphor for somebody's relationship, marriage or whatever. So they give me the track, and I think, now wait a minute, what am I gonna do here? There's, I have two alternatives. One is to do the sort of traditional Motown type, you know, yep, yep, strings that we all know, you know. Or we do some sort of maritime impressionist thing. So, well, anyway, to cut a long story short, I did a sort of Ravel Debussy, I don't know what, sort of like just spooky shit, like hanging in the air, you know, this. I'll never forget. <laughs> I rehearsed the orchestra and then I said to the guys in the booth, okay, turn on the tape recorder, we'll, we'll do one now. So I did it. And we did the take, and I came back in the control room, and there was these, like, eight or ten black guys standing around, and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in serious trouble here. Not a bit of it. They could not get over the fact that they hadn't got what they were expecting. But they got this thing, whatever it was, that they'd never heard before, that sort of... I don't know, just point, pointed up this, this metaphor they had. But I think that's an exception. I think on the whole, you have to be very conscious of the context in which you're working. British arranger Jeremy Lubbock there has been phenomenally successful in L.A. since the 70s with hits for everyone from Chicago to Barbara Streisand. He heard something in the lyrics to that Four Tops tune that launched the entire arrangement. But you also have to tailor the arrangement to your audience how in tarnation does an arranger come up with those melodies that make you scream, can't get you out of my head? One of the things that I'm most thankful for, and I don't know why this is true, Richard, when I get a new track from somebody, I have the intro written in about five minutes. Most of what we write, I don't think we write at all. I think we're just messengers. I think whatever it is comes down the pipe at that point that says, write this intro, comes down the pipe. Bang. Head, boy, 
British arranger Jeremy Lubbock with the Big Bang Theory. Well, that gives you an overview of what's in store. Next week, we'll take you where our era of pop music started, the fabulous 50s. Thanks to all the arrangers on tonight's show, and thanks to my producer Elizabeth Clark for arranging me. It's fair to say I'm still Richard Niles, hoping you'll arrange to join me same time next week, right here on BBC Radio 2 with my history of pop arranging. <laughs>